Hi, my name is Diana. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Katie. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 13, 1 through 4. Every person should place themselves under the authority of the government. There isn't any authority unless it comes from God, and the authorities that are there have been put in place by God. So anyone who opposes the authority is standing against what God has established. People who take this kind of stand will get punished. The authorities don't frighten people who are doing the right thing. Rather, they frighten people who are doing wrong. Would you rather not be afraid of authority? Do what's right, and you will receive its approval. It is God's servant given for your benefit. But if you do what's wrong, be afraid, because it doesn't have weapons to enforce the law for nothing. It is God's servant put in place to carry out his punishment on those who do what is wrong. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maggie, and thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 19, 8 to 12. When Pilate heard this word, he was even more afraid. He went back into the, the residence and spoke to Jesus. Where are you from? Jesus didn't answer. So Pilate said, you, don't speak to, you won't speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and also to crucify you? Jesus replied, you would have no authority over me if it had not been given to you from above. That's why the one who handed me over to you has the greatest, greater sin. For that moment on, Pilate wanted to release Jesus. However, the Jewish leaders cried out, saying, If you release this man, you aren't a friend of the emperor. Anyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes the emperor. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Let's remain standing as we pray. So, Father, we ask today for the grace of God to abound to us in every way. We pray that you would guide my own words this morning, and we pray that you would guide our ears and our hearts and our minds as we listen and meditate on your word. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us, you would challenge us, you would convict us, you would change us, you would conform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Everybody said, amen. You may be seated. I want to echo what's already been said today and add my uh, line of honor and recognition to our veterans here this morning. We're very grateful for your courage and for your sacrifice and for your service. Uh, in, in a day where those virtues are in short supply, it's wonderful to know 
men and women like you, so I appreciate that very much. And it's a fitting sermon this morning because our text, just the way it landed as we've been going through the series uh, through the book of Romans, takes us to the place where we're going to reflect on government and the role of government. And so uh, certainly our, our servicemen and women uh, function in, in many ways as an extension of uh, the government overseas and, and maybe function in some ways to protect uh, the ideals that their government itself establishes. And so this morning, we want to reflect on what governments can be, what governments can be. Now, if you're like me, maybe you're just a little bit tired of all of the political posts. Uh, maybe you're tired by seeing, scrolling through Facebook and seeing someone uh, posting a video or a blog or a meme and hoping to change the world one meme at a time, you know? And maybe you're a little worn out by it and you're saying, oh my goodness, can we just stop all of this? Why is everything? And so when we come to church, our hope might be that church is a politics-free zone. And in one sense, if what we mean by politics is a partisan politics, a politics that argues political in the sense that it argues for particular points of views and particular issues, then yes, the pulpit is not to be used to to, uh, persuade on one particular edge or another. The, the, The church is called to be followers of Jesus and King Jesus. But if by political we mean that the gospel just really shouldn't try to address social issues or political questions, that really let's just keep Jesus to that area where we we need him the most about the forgiveness of sins and about our hope for the afterlife. If that's what we mean by this, then I want to say that that's not possible. That in fact, from the very beginning, the followers of Jesus understood that to give your allegiance to Jesus had political implications. It had implications for how we live here and now. It was not just a good news about the afterlife or a good news about the soul being forgiven of its sins, but it was good news for the world and good news for our life here and now. So when we talk about this text today, I want us to think through a bit of the backdrop for for one thing, uh, um, the early Christians took many of the titles that were applied to Caesar and then applied them to Jesus. So for example, we think of uh, the phrase, son of God. Well, Caesar Augustus, uh, who, uh, Octavian, who became known as Caesar Augustus, was the son of Julius Caesar, and Julius Caesar was called a god or God. And so then they thought, well, Octavian is his son, so he's a son of God. And, and he didn't stop them from saying that. And the early Christians said, no, 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 he's not the son of God. Jesus is the son of God with a capital S and a capital capital G, the Son of God. And then some of these other Caesars, because of the Pax Romana, uh, you think about the peace that was introduced into the known world. Caesar was also called the Prince of Peace. And these early Christians said, no, that's a false peace. A true peace can only be what God brings about. The true shalom of the healing of the world that Isaiah spoke about. This is what Jesus brings about. And then because Octavian had won these great battles that, that brought together regions of the empire, He was sometimes called the King of Kings or the Lord of Lords. Well, all of these titles are ripped from political propaganda of the day and applied to Jesus. It was like the early Christians heard all these slogans and said, that's fake news. (laughs) And said, the good news is that Jesus alone is King. I said that just to kind of break the ice a little bit. So, So the gospel has social and political 
ramifications. But how we work through it is sometimes more complex than we would like. So Romans 13, what I want to say as the backdrop for this is that this text is really a bit of a response to the question of what governments can be at their best. What government can be at its best best. Now, the backdrop of Romans, it was written at a time where there wasn't that much persecution. In fact, it hadn't really started. Very likely, the timing of this letter, uh, uh, Nero was the emperor. Now, we, some of you that know church history, you know that eventually Nero would be a terrible emperor, and he would be very uh, brutal to Christians, and there would be harsh persecution. But in these first five years of his reign, he was actually pretty good, so much so that people sometimes referred to this as the golden age of Nero. Right? So when Paul's writing this, government is not awful. They're, they're not friendly towards Christians per se, but they're not awful about it. And so Paul says here in verse 1 through 4, every person should place themselves under the authority of the government and there isn't any authority unless it comes from God and the authorities that are there have been put in place by God. We're going to come back to that theme over and over again. And so anyone who opposes the authority is actually standing against what God has established And people who take this kind of stand will get punished. The authorities don't frighten people who are doing the right thing. Rather, they frighten people who are doing wrong. So would you rather not be afraid of authority? Fine, do what's right, and you'll receive its approval. Now, verse 4 is where Paul kind of gives a little job description. Twice in verse 4, he he says that government is God's servant. Here he says, it is God's servant given for your benefit. And so the first thing I want to say is that governments at its best... A government can be, at its best, the servant of God for the common good. At its best, government can be the servant of God for the common good. They provide safety, protection. They provide uh, the, the conditions in which people can flourish and live a peaceful and flourishing life. And so, at its best, government is the servant of God for the common good. Now, listen, having said that doesn't solve all of our problems, does it? Because there's still a lot of debate about what the common good is, first of all, and the best path to get there, right? And this is the reason we have political debates here in America is because we, we have, we're trying to get a common definition of the common good and we're trying to agree on the pathway to get there. So I'm all for it. I hope that in our congregation we have people that represent all kinds of detailed views about how to achieve this. I hope that we have men and women that serve in uh, the public square that wrestle over what the common good means and what are the best ways of achieving it. That's great. Our concern as the church is to say, hey, listen, at your best, government, at at your best, uh, politicians, you can be the servant of God for the common good. Now, verse 4 continues, back to Romans 13, and then Paul says, but if you do what's wrong, be afraid, because it doesn't have weapons to enforce the law for nothing. It is God's servant put in place to carry out his punishment on those who do what is wrong. So here again, he says, it is God's servant. Twice in the same verse, he's called the government, mind you, the Roman government. He's referred to them as God's servant. Now this phrase, carry out his punishment, has the sense of rectifying a wrong, taking something that is out of place and rectifying it, fixing it, making it right. And so I would like to say, secondly, at its best, government is the servant of God for the execution of justice. At its best, what a government can do is find places where things are being tipped in favor of the wrong people or tipped in favor of unrighteousness or wickedness and saying, no, 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 let's rectify that. Let's make it right. Let's set this back up. Now, 
It's important that we say that only Jesus can execute justice perfectly, right? And so the end of the scriptures is this vision of Jesus as the one who is just and righteous and true and merciful, and every human attempt at justice is going to just be an approximation of justice. It's going to be something that comes close to it. But listen, wouldn't we like to come as close as possible to justice? Yes, we would. So some people hear that and they say, well, who cares about human governments because only Jesus. And, like, and you forget, now hang on a minute. We want human governments to, to get as close as they can to justice. And we're going to keep trying and we're going to keep working and we're going to keep trying to influence it because we, want, we believe that at its best, it can be a servant of God for the execution of justice. Now, if Romans 13 were all the scriptures had to say about government, we, w- we might be in, on good ground to kind of throw this chapter at people. And in recent times, Romans 13 has been used as a way of just sort of shutting down a conversation and saying, ah, see, what are, what's these protests or what's this stuff or what's this opposition? Just Romans 13, pff, throw the book at you. But I think if you're going to throw the Bible at someone, you might as well read it. And the Bible has a lot more to say than Romans 13. And in fact, when you follow the the trajectory of the New Testament, the conditions for the church actually change over time. A few decades after the time that Romans 13 was written, John, one of the followers of Jesus, is on an island of Patmos and he gets these visions and it's recorded in a book called the book of Revelation. Now, some of you might be familiar with the book of Revelation. You're like, oh no, scary, crazy book, weird, like hallucinating images of beasts and dragons. I mean, just crazy stuff. Others of you are familiar uh, with the book because it's been used to argue different viewpoints about the end times and all of this stuff. Listen, where all scholars agree is what the book of Revelation says about itself. And what it says about itself is that this is an apocalypse of Jesus. Now, when I say the word apocalypse, what do you think about? Zombies, end of the world. But do you know what the word apocalypse means? It means an unveiling. And so the book of Revelation says about itself that this is the unveiling of Jesus. This is the revealing of Jesus. Any of you watched the movie but years ago, The Matrix? Right? That, that moment where Neo, whoa, Keanu Reeves always the same character, but <laughs> every movie, whoa. Um, but he, he, you know, the curtain gets pulled, he, he recognizes the machines are really running the world or whatever, right? Whoa. Uh, there's this great unveiling of what's really going on. The book of Revelation is an unveiling, it's a pulling back of the curtain to say, the evil human governments that you see are actually being animated by the dragon, by evil itself. But the true king of the world is the lamb who was slain, is Jesus. And so when Revelation says about itself, this is the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus, it means to say to us, don't get caught up with this book primarily as some future crystal ball. We've got to figure out end times charts and all this stuff. No, 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 no. You're on the wrong foot. If you, if you misunderstand the very first lines of the book, which say very clearly, this is the revealing of Jesus, the revelation of who Jesus is. Now, secondly, when we go on about this, all of the commentators, uh, that, 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 have, that when they study this, they want to point out to us the difference between symbols and codes. Codes can only have one reference point. So you, you read in Revelation about a beast, and you're like, oh, Who's the beast? Was it Nero? Was it Hitler? Was it 
your least favorite American president, you know, who is this beast, right? Instead of remembering, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Hebrew prophetic poetry doesn't use codes, it uses symbols. Now, what's the difference between a symbol? A symbol can have many reference points. And so a symbol says there are lots of things that act beastly, lots of governments that act beast-like, and the church is supposed to act lamb-like. And so the book of Revelation sets before us a series of contrasting symbols so that we can begin to see it. Now, by the time we get to Revelation 13, what's already happened is in Revelation 12, we're told there's this dragon, and the symbol of the dragon is meant to represent for us the evil one, the one who opposes God. And then he says in Revelation 13, verse 1, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you and me, per se, because you're like, oh, man, why ruin a perfectly good beach, you know? Sea monsters. But in Hebrew poetry and in Hebrew prophetic poetry, The sea monster is a symbol of human governments that oppose the people of God. And this is there. This is there in in several of the the, the renditions of Hebrew poets because so many of their enemies did come on ships to them. And so they sort of, they they, they grew this metaphor in their storytelling and in their poetry that the monster from the sea represents that oppressive government government that opposes the people of God. And so Revelation says this beast comes out of the sea and it has horns and all of this stuff. In the end of verse 2, it says the dragon gave it its power. It's an agent of evil. evil. And then he goes on, he says the beast was given authority to act and then it blasphemes God's name and it was allowed to make war on the saints and gain victory. It was given authority over tribe and people and tongue and language. This is for us a picture of what governments can be at their worst. And so for the people hearing John's, reading John's letter in their day, they're finding parallels in their own, they're finding parallels between the Roman Empire and it's the way it was persecuting the church. But there's a sense here in which because it's a symbol, it applies to any government that acts this way. And so what government, what can governments be at their worst? At its worst, Government is the agent of evil who blasphemes God. Now, we've heard some of this in our day. We've seen over the last century in particular, rulers in other parts of the world rise to power and say, we will be the strongest force, we will conquer. And and those are usually the kinds of things that start global wars and global conflicts when someone blasphemes God and says, we're going to dominate, we're going to take over. But do you know, and this may be more uncomfortable for us to hear, I think that sometimes we can see instances of even our beloved Western governments blaspheming God by claiming to do things that actually only God can do. By claiming to be what only God is. An example of this, okay? In the wake of September 11th, governments of Western world got together and said, we are going to rid the world of evil. Now, I understand why you'd want to say a thing like that. In the wake of these horrific events, you want to do this. Oh, we are going to... And it's a wonderful speech if we recognize that this is an exaggeration. Because no government can actually rid the world of evil. And much harm has come 
from sometimes those who have tried. And so when a government or a human institution says, we will be the answer to this, we will rid the world of evil, Christians should say, hang on, I appreciate the, the, the effort to execute justice, but let's not get too carried away here. You cannot rid the world of evil. Only God can do that. And so Christians put kind of a temper on this and say, well, a tempering influence on this and say, okay, yes, this, but not quite that, right? We're not going to get to the place here where we blaspheme God. And then secondly, at its worst, government is the agent, agent of evil who oppresses the people of God. Now, you don't have to look far around the world to think of this. You can think about how the systematic uh, persecution of the church in uh, the Coptic church in, in Egypt and in Syria, you think about the way church bombings happened and, and, and all around the world where governments sort of bless it or endorse it or harbor terrorists who do those things. And now you realize, now wait a minute, why are these governments making it easy for people to oppress the, the, the church and the people of God? And all of you who have worked in global missions, you understand there are some governments that make it easier for the gospel to be preached, and there are some go uh, governments that deliberately place oppositions and obstacles in your path. I grew up in Malaysia. It's technically a place where there's religious toleration. The government always has to be uh, led by a Muslim prime minister, but generally things are happy except for one big thing. You can't actually preach the gospel to a Muslim. And if you are found to be responsible for leading a Muslim to convert to Christianity, you can be prosecuted. And so I remember growing up as a kid and my parents telling stories of a pastor friend that they knew from a Baptist church who had been arrested and been tortured because he was responsible for actively uh, preaching to Muslims. So I understand that governments at their worst can be the agents of evil who actually oppress and oppose the people of God and the mission of God. Now... The question is, if we zoom back out and say, okay, so we got Romans 13, it can be the servant of God, and then we got Revelation 13, it can be the agent of evil, you're like, well, which is it? Which is it? And then we're tempted to come up with easy answers and to say, well, thank God we live here, and so clearly we're over here in Romans 13. Well, maybe. But I just want to show you how complex this is even in the scriptures, okay? So let's take Israel and Egypt in the Old Testament. Is Egypt... The Romans 13, good kind of government, or the Revelation 13, beastly kind of government? Well, let's think about this. Joseph, under Egypt, finds a way to rise to influence, doesn't he? He serves. He serves in Pharaoh's house. He becomes an instrument for the common good. How? He guides Pharaoh into surviving the famine, and they store up all these supplies, and eventually it saves the future of Israel because of Joseph, Joseph's influence. So Joseph might have said, might have said you know what? This is a Romans 13 thing. Government can be the servant of God. But then the scripture says, after Joseph died, another Pharaoh arose who did not remember Joseph. And he looked around and said, who are all these Hebrew people? Let's make them slaves. And he began to oppress the people of God. And so then Moses is raised up. And the Bible says Moses is the greatest prophet at the time on the face of the earth, right? That the world has ever known. Moses is a prophet. Why? Because he forecasts the future? No, because he speaks the truth to power. And so Moses, he doesn't operate in the Joseph paradigm. He doesn't say, oh, Egypt, Pharaoh, you're the servant of God. He says, Pharaoh, you are opposing God and you are opposing the mission of God. So God says, let my people go. And so you're like, okay, great. Okay, great. Glenn, I see it. I could be Joseph or I could be Moses. Great. Which one? It gets even more complicated than that. 
Because as time goes on, the people of Israel get carried into exile in Babylon. And they're living in Babylon. And, and what we find in the Old Testament are several different ways of living in Babylon. You have the Daniel way, like the children's song, Dare to be a Daniel, right? Let's, let's just bear, dare to, let's rise up to influence and be in the courts of power. That's great. Worked out for Daniel. Worked out kind of for Esther as well. Those are those stories. But then we have the story of those three other Hebrew guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Anyone remember them? Hard to pronounce names, really fun VeggieTales kids songs about them, right? These guys don't experience the influence that Daniel does. What do they do? They resist. They say, they say we're not going to bow down, so they resist. And so there's, there's, a, there's both and going on. There's Daniel who's enjoying influence. There's the three guys who are having to resist. And then there's Jeremiah who says, you know what? <coughs> We're going to Babylon. I'm so tired of crying and weeping over God's people. Can we just plant gardens and make our peace with it? And so Jeremiah 29, he, in his letter to the exiles, he says, you know what, guys? Just go ahead and settle down, okay? We're going to be here a while. So plant gardens, build homes, give your sons and daughters away into marriage, seek the good of the city. Here's the point. It's complicated. Even if we are living in Babylon, which one are you? Are you Daniel? Are you Jeremiah? Are you, are you the Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego? How, how do we live in this world? It's complicated. And what complicates it even further is that it's possible to live in the same country and to be experiencing different realities. That some of you could be experiencing the blessing of a good government as the servant of God. And others of you could say, well, I see that. But just so you know, I'm also experiencing a profound injustice. And we can't say to one another, no, hang on, that's not even true. Romans 13, Bible bomb, you know. We can't do that. We have to say, you know what, even as the same people of God, we're going to inhabit this space differently. So I want to provide three Big idea principles for how we prayerfully discern this, okay? Number one, we treat human authorities as delegated by God. This is the one we can't get out of. Verse 1 there in Romans 13, it's all delegated by God. Paul will say this in Ephesians 6 in one of the harshest of conditions. He's talking to, to uh, an institution that he, he wants to unravel but can't. And he says, look, you've got to even obey your masters as unto the Lord. This is just so, it's so painful, it's so difficult. But what he's trying to say is, even when the person is unrighteous, recognize that you can give your service as an offering up to God. Even when they're not worth it, he is always worth it. Find a way to submit. I think as parents, one of the great challenges for Holly and I is to raise children who are critical thinkers, who don't just automatically accept stuff and yet learn to honor and regard places and positions of authority. And so we, we, we try not to say to them, just do this because I said so. <laughs> we try to say, well, let's talk, what, what are particularly are you objecting to here, you know? And then to maybe explain and to maybe have a conversation about this because we want to have a thoughtful yet honoring yet humble engagement with authority. And that's tricky. But secondly, we are to use whatever influence we have to call government to fulfill its potential. Use whatever influence you have to call. Romans 13, in the one sense, is a beautiful job description of what government can be. We've said it at its best. And so here we are, 
<laughs> we have the opportunity to use whatever influence we have to call government to live up to its potential. Do this. Be a service, servant to the public. Be good for the common person. Rectify wrongs where you find it. I'll never forget, in January of this year, I had visited Washington, D.C. before, but hadn't really taken the time to see the sights, and I was speaking at an event called Evangelicals for Life, uh, put on by Focus and, and another organization from the Southern Baptists, and, and, uh, and we were covering the spectrum of, of, of life issues from the womb to the tomb, as it were. And uh, on my uh, spare day, I was there with Ian Spear, who's from our congregation here. He's a lawyer, but he lived in D.C. for a number of years, he and his family. And so he said, I'll give you the tour. And so I got the tour of D.C. from a lawyer, which take that however you want. Uh, but but Ian's, a, Ian's a history buff, and so it was great fun. And, uh, and we went to the archives building, and we're looking at the Declara- Declaration of Independence, and we're looking at the monuments, and I was so struck by the beauty of this story. And really one of the historical phenomenons that, that led to America, which is what other place, there, there, there are not many, where you got to start with kind of a blank slate and draw this up. You know, people talk about the European revolutions and all of that, but they're working with existing structures that had to be overhauled or, as the case may be, overthrown, right? Messy, bloody. And in, in America, you have, you, you, we had the opportunity for these, these founding fathers to write from scratch. And so they're drawing on the best, what they think is the best from Plato and the best from uh, the, the different thinkers of their day and John Locke and others. And they're saying, okay, how can we construct a society that makes this work, that gives it its best shot? And that is a remarkable thing. And what they, they tried to do is provide a place where actually citizens get a voice. Citizens get a shot at changing this. So we have local elections, we have national elections, we have the freedom to assembly, to assemble rather, and to, and to rally, and to make our voice heard. Do you know what a privilege that is? And how rare that is around the world. And so it's heartbreaking for me to hear people complain about the influence of government, but then do nothing to change it or influence it to refuse to vote, to refuse to participate, to refuse to... I think, wait a minute, we've been given certain means of influence into this. Use it. Use it. Leverage everything you can. And certainly, above all, pray. This is why the New Testament says pray for those, because it's not easy. We've already said it's tricky to decide what the common good is, and it's tricky to decide how to get there. So pray for them. Influence. Vote. Pray. Leverage everything you can to call government to fulfill its potential. But then here's the third thing. We resist where government acts against God and his people. We do resist. There are moments for resistance. Now I know you're saying, well, Romans 13 says those who resist are resisting things that God has put into place. That's true. But fast forward a few decades and what do you find? You find the church resisting. You find the church using the way of Jesus as a way to speak the truth to power and to say, no, no, we will not go along with that. No, we will. Dis-. And, and sometimes there is acts of disobedience where they're going to go and care for the sick even when they've been told not to. Or I think of missionaries today that are bringing Bibles in and all of their, there's acts of that kind of disobedience for the sake of it. But then there's places of resistance. Now, resistance, the injustice might be the sins of commission, meaning governments are 
actively doing things that you would say, that's unjust. Or it might be the sins of omission. Most often I would suggest it's that. Where, where you say, well, why is the government not acting on behalf of this? Why, why, when they have the power to rectify a wrong, are they not rectifying a wrong? And so I want to speak for that. Now, we could tell stories throughout the ages from the early Christians in the gladiator arenas and all of their situations of persecution. You understand that they were not persecuted because they believed in a religion. They were persecuted because they believed in another king. Rome didn't kill Christians because, like, oh, we don't like that. Rome loved religions. They had all kinds of religions. Why were they threatened by Christians? Because Christians believed in another king. That's the difference. And so Jesus, when he's before Pilate, he says, he says, hey, listen, you wouldn't have any power unless my father gave it to you. And then Pilate says, I don't really know what to do. And the Jewish leaders, John does this in his gospel. He does it a couple times where he has the Jewish leaders say something that is unintentionally prophetic. And so, so this is how John records it. He says, however, the Jewish leaders cried out saying, if you release this man, you aren't a friend of the emperor because anyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes the emperor. And John's like, mic drop. Because in case you didn't catch it, to follow Jesus is to set yourself up against, at occasions, not always, but at occasions, against places where government opposes God, right? So there are places where we say, yes, we submit. Yes, we're calling it to be its best. But man, there are going to be times when you say, you know what? No. No, I'm not, I'm not in with that. And, and this... This is hugely important because it's not just that we resist, it's how we resist. And so Christians have had this long history of resisting in a Christ-like way. You you realize Jesus in front of Pilate doesn't punch him in the mouth. (laughs) He doesn't say, you dummy. He, He stays silent. This is why centuries later, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., would develop what he called nonviolent resistance. A way of saying, look, we don't fight hate with hate. We don't drive out the darkness with more darkness. We're going to be peaceful. We're going to be forgiving. When they bomb our churches and they beat us up, we're going to forgive. Dr. King uh, wrote a book called The the stride to freedom, stride toward freedom. It's the story of Montgomery, and in it he outlines six principles of nonviolent resistance. One of the principles is, Dr. King said, it's evil itself that must be opposed, not the people who commit evil acts. That's huge. Not, not just, not the people who, who oppose... It's the evil itself. This is, this is like that image in Revelation 13. Look, the beast is bad, but the beast is just operating on behalf of the dragon. And so Paul said in Ephesians 6, but we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And so Dr. King said, recognize that when you stand and when you resist, it's not the person ultimately that you're resisting. You're resisting the evil that is working through them. Work that way. And then he said, I love this one, he says, nonviolence is both internal and external. Look at this quote. The nonviolent resistor not only avoids external physical violence, but he avoids in the internal violence of spirit. He not only refuses to shoot his opponent, but he refuses to hate him. And he stands with understanding and goodwill 
at all times. Some friends of mine wrote a book called The Way of the Dragon and The Way of the Lamb, and they interviewed several people all in their 70s. One of them was John Perkins, who marched with Dr. King. And interviewed in, the, in this book, chapter after chapter, is stories of these men and women who are serving Jesus and resisting the temptation to follow the way of the dragon. What do I mean by that? Don't we sometimes fall into the error of saying, well, my cause is just, therefore I'm going to use any means necessary. That is not the Jesus way. The Jesus way is to say, not only does our cause need to be just, our way needs to be Christ-like. And so we, if we resist, we resist in the way of the lamb, not in the way of the dragon that hits back, fights back. Dr. King said the only way you can believe in nonviolent resistance is because you have to believe that in the end the universe is on the side of justice. And of course, we know the, favorite, the, f- the famous quote, right? The arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. It's there uh, engraved in his uh, monument there in D.C. And Christians would say something even more, we as the church would say something even more specific than that. We would say, it's not just that the universe is on, it's that the king of the universe will bring about justice one day. It's that the king of the universe, we are the people who believe that Isaiah was not wrong when he said that his name, Jesus' name, shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and of his reign there shall be no end. We think Isaiah was not wrong when he said that about Jesus. We're the people who believe in that. And so the end of Romans 13, verse 11 In 12, Paul says, as you do all this, you know what time it is. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your sleep. Now our salvation is nearer than when we first had faith. The night is almost over. The day is near. So let's get rid of the actions that belong to the darkness and put on the weapons of light. What's Paul saying? You're able to live this way as you do all of these things. Just remember, this isn't the end of the story. You might be It might look like Nero wins, but just remember this isn't the end of the story. It's midnight in the world around us, Paul's saying, but we are the people who already know what time it is. A new day has already dawned. A new day has already dawned, and in God's kingdom, it's morning, and Jesus is king. And so we're going to live under his kingship now. Amen. In God's kingdom, it's already morning, and we're going to live as Jesus, as if Jesus is King And the words of the, the choir the, in heaven in the book of Revelation say, the kingdom of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And you can hear the choir echoing Handel's Messiah, and he shall reign, and he shall reign, and he shall reign. And this is what holds us together. Not because we have confidence in political parties, Not because ultimately we trust our own influence and our ability to rally. We do all of those things. Remember, we do all of those things. But ultimately we say, you know what? We'll never get it right. We're going to keep trying. But in the end, our hope for the world is that King Jesus will make all the kingdoms of this world his own kingdom. And he will reign. And he will reign. And so we're learning to live now, not following a donkey or an elephant, but following the Lamb of God. 
learning to live now, saying, I don't embrace the way of the dragon. I embrace the way of the Lamb, the crucified and risen Son of God. And the prayer for you is going to be, Holy Spirit, help me to discern this. Where do I need to leverage more influence? Where have I been passive and I shouldn't be? Others of you are going to say, Lord, where do I need to embrace a Christ-like way of resistance? See, some of you, the challenge from the Lord is submit. Recognize that government can be a servant of God. Others of you, the, the, the challenge is going to be resist. Find a way to actually, through your resistance, call government to its potential. But all of us, all of us, are called to follow the way of the Lamb. Would you bow your heads this morning? Maybe for, for us this morning, there's an invitation from the Holy Spirit to take the burden off of your own shoulders. You've been carrying the weight of the world saying, oh, I've got to... And maybe it's not about government or social issues. Maybe it's closer than that. Maybe it's your own life. Maybe it's your own home. You're saying, God, I need a good shepherd to take the weight on his shoulders. And the gospel this morning is that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, the true king who gives his life. And that's got good news for the world, but it is also good news for your soul. And so where are the places that you need to say, God, take this weight off of me, place the government on your shoulders, place the reins in your hands. Jesus, you are the one. And so as we pray this prayer this morning, let's pray it as a way of returning again to the Lord. Let's pray.